Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Yardani joining us now. Yardani Research President. I'd love to do this with you. You coined the term bond vigilante decades ago. And many people have been asking a question, where are the bond vigilantes? With the yield still at 160 on 10s, where are they, Ed? Well, I think they're actually back. Uh, you recall back in August, the uh, bond yield was 0.52% uh, as an all-time record low. And now we're uh, somewhere around 1.6%. So, uh, and much of that uh, backup in bond yields occurred uh, late last year and early this year. And then they went on a siesta. Uh, it's been really uh, surprising to me that uh, the bond yield has kind of gone nowhere fast uh, over the past uh, couple of months. Uh, but then again, I keep looking at the Fed data and the Fed keeps buying notes and bonds. So I think that's the answer is the Fed has been doing its best to keep the bond yield from going up. Uh, but I do think they're coming back. I think the siesta is over. I think we're going to see some bad inflation numbers up ahead here. Uh, just a continuation of uh, the recent bad trend. Ed, you own the high ground in this. We are honored to have you here on a June 1st. It comes down to George Akerlof writing late in the 60s. Mrs. Akerlof, presently the Secretary of Treasury, picking it up in the middle 80s. Olivier Blanchard with a definitive article on the wage price spiral. Way in here, is that what's coming for 2022? Well, I think anecdotally, there's just so much out there suggesting that uh, the labor market's tight. And, uh, you know, what, what matters for, for wages is the extent to which employers view it as a, as a chronic problem. And I think it is a chronic problem. It's You folks mentioned all the possibilities of why the labor market's tight right now. Uh, but I think the most important one is demographics. We forgot to have kids along the way here. And there isn't just uh, too yes, many people. Yes, we did, John. <laughs> Speak for yourself. Ed, there is a question, though, here going forward that uh, there has been these frictions. Yes, it's one thing that we haven't had enough kids uh, generally, collectively, and our fertility rate collectively has gone down. On the other hand, there is this idea that we had all these people in the labor market a year ago and now we don't. Right. And that is something distinct. What is blocking them from coming back online? What's your answer to this mystery? Well, I've, I've been looking at the labor force data and it definitely shows that uh, seniors are retiring. A lot of baby boomers uh, who worked past 65, uh, and some of them are now in their 70s. Um, and uh, they've just decided, you know what, it's time to just retire, you know, me meaning of life and all that. Uh, and then I think you've you made a very good point on childcare. We do have a childcare problem in the United States. We've had it for a long time. It was exacerbated by the pandemic. And uh, I think as schools open up, as childcare facilities opened up, uh, we are going to find people going back into the labor market. But nevertheless, uh, there really is a shortage of uh, workers, particularly skilled workers. And um, as you know, we've got uh, almost as uh, uh, many, uh, we, we've got more, right. uh, almost as many job openings as we have unemployed people. Let's build on that. I want to jump in. Just forgive me, Tom. Please, I'm coming with this. It came from Jim Bullard, the St. Louis Fed right president to go. in the FT. And he was talking about maybe looking at a different metric. And maybe this is exactly where you wanted to go, Tom. Bullard is starting to advocate for the Fed to look at other measures of job market tightness, the unemployment to job opening ratio. Ed Giardini, is that useful? 
I think it's very useful, but but it uh, right now is indicating a lot of frictional unemployment, either a, a mismatch in skills or a geographic mismatch. Uh, whatever it is, there's plenty of jobs out there. Employers are just, I mean, anecdotally, we see help wanted ads right. ep- everywhere. Mm-hmm. But look, I, I think I think the good news here is employers, if they can, are going to use technology to increase productivity. And that should be an important offset uh, right. in the next few years. Ed, what is the level of inflation, just regular CPI, where you begin to see whispers of a time of a younger Yardeni? What's the <laughs> jump point where we get out yeah. to a new inflation? Well, I, I keep writing about uh, the, the roaring 2020s as a possible scenario here where productivity would be a tremendous offset to labor costs. Uh, on the other hand, I also write about the 1970s, and that's when I was a, a bit younger. And uh, I am concerned about that scenario. We're starting to see some a lot of similarities, food prices going up, energy prices going up, uh, wages going up. Uh, however, in the 70s, productivity growth absolutely collapsed. And I think that's the big difference. Uh, but in the short term here, we clearly have not just only a base effect, but we have a demand shock effect, which has created a supply shock effect. And I think we are going to uh, be shocked at some of the inflation news over the next few months, both on the CPI deflator and wage basis. Ed, I think I speak for all of us. It has been way too long. Yeah. Come back soon. Absolutely. Ed, we're, thinking, we're thinking Thursday, Ed. Denny Research <laughs> President. Got into payrolls it. Friday, talking about the dynamics in this economy. Paul Sweeney and Tom Keene, our most important discussion on the equity markets right now. Is it appropriate that as we enter June, Michael Wilson of Morgan Stanley would quote Charles Dickens, we need never be ashamed of our tears. That from Great Expectations, of course. Mike Wilson, this market goes up and up. Let's say it's up 38%, 12 months trailing. A lot of people are on board, and yet there's so many walls of worry. Frame our great expectations right now. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. I mean, yeah, that's part of the story. I mean, the market's up a lot because two things. Uh, Obviously, we've had an incredible recovery so far, uh, and the earnings have reflected that. Uh, There's been tremendous operating leverage as the government has uh, subsidized the unemployment cycle in a way like we've never seen before. And rates have remained low because of the support from the Fed. So you've got a, a very potent cocktail for, uh, you know, for equities. Now, where we are now is we think that some of those expectations, particularly around earnings growth and even economic growth, have probably caught up to reality and in some cases may have exceeded that. Uh, we wrote about that this weekend, which is that this is the first time since the recovery began As we look out into 2022, the consensus bottoms-up estimates now for S&P earnings are actually above what we think is achievable. That's the first time that we can kind of say that. And so what that really means is that, you know, the multiples probably have to come down a little bit as we grow into kind of reality. And that's not the end of the bull market. It's not the end of the cycle. But it does uh, argue that it's going to be a little tougher from here. Things are going to chop around. They've already been doing that to some degree. The average stock hasn't made a lot of progress in the last couple of months. And you just got to be more selective. Uh, and that's the stage of the cycle we're in right now. All right, Mike, if I want to be more selective, am I still selective in the in the stocks that got me here over the last decade, which is the Amazons and the Apples of the world, which have underperformed a little bit recently? Or do I stick with that rotation trade into some of the more cyclical, cyclical areas of the market that have really done well over the last year or so? Yeah, Paul, let's talk about that. Those are two different sort of questions. The first is we do think that this cycle – 
uh, will lead to a different form of leadership. Uh, we've been writing about that for a while, as have others. And so that rotation that you refer to, kind of to the you know the value sectors, things that are geared towards higher inflation, higher nominal GDP, a higher volatile, more volatile economy, should do better, and they have. So we think that's sustainable, meaning that rotation we think is going to play out over this economic cycle where uh, the value cohort actually participates more yeah. and in many cases wins. Now, that doesn't mean that growth stocks, though, can't do okay. What it does mean, though, is we think you can't overpay for that anymore like you have over the last 10 years. Well, I, I hate to do, you know, ready? Mr. <laughs> Wilson does not speak about individual securities. With that said, we'll ask you about Apple. <laughs> I, I mean, Mike, I, I, I love what you're saying but how growthy or value are these loved big cap techs? I think it depends on the stock. I mean, we've been making that choice, too, uh, where we you know, yeah. try to pick ones that we think are reasonably priced and can continue to grow. So, for example, Google is on our fresh money buy list, whereas some of the other large cap you know, growth stocks are not. So we, I think even within that cohort, you need to be more selective. Some of them are more expensive than they should be. And some can you know, are fine, and and that's you know I think that's the trick here, Tom, is that you just it's not a rising tide lifts all boats, and 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 once again it doesn't mean that only value stocks can work or only growth stocks can work. No, I think both can work, but it's not an environment where you can pay egregious multiples anymore for growth, and that that era is over. Mike, I'm starting to hear a little bit on the fringes talk about talk about tapering. When does that become a concern for? the folks that do have the courage to be in this market? Well, I mean, look, that's a, that's a function of the recovery. I mean, we this is no different than any other cycle where, you know, the Federal Reserve and other central banks have to begin to, you know, ease back on policy support because, because quite frankly, they've been successful. You know, I mean, everybody's afraid of tapering or tightening by the Fed, but let me give you another – they're not tightening or tapering. That means they failed. So I would not be rooting for the Fed to not be ta tapering or tightening later this year. That's our call. We think later this year they will be talking about it for yeah. sure, and next year they will be tapering, and that's another reason why multiples can come down. Once again, that's a better outcome than policy failing and growth rolling over, and then you have a real problem. So I, I think we should all be cheering for tapering at some point and just deal with it. Sandra and Poor is up 24 points, 4227, down not near 35,000, but getting there. 34,763, up 234 points. The VIX was in on a 16 handle, 17.13 on the VIX. The yield, uh, I'm bored, Paul. Yeah, 1.62%. <laughs> All right, Mike, what are the sectors that you're talking to your clients about right now? Yeah, so I mean, look, we, as I said earlier, Paul, we, we do think that this reflationary story is, is real, that the Fed will achieve success in that regard. They will be uh, tightening policy at some point, and that favors certain types of sectors. We think financials and materials are the two that look most attractive to us, where they're still reasonably priced. They're both geared to benefiting from that sort of new environment. And then we also like, you know, defensively oriented, high-quality uh, sectors like healthcare. Parts of the technology sector look attractive, but once again, you got to be a bit more selective. So it's a combination. It's a combination of reflation stories and these, you know, growth stocks that are, are reasonably priced. And those yeah. are the four areas that we're focused on. Mike Wilson on EM, on international, on the nuances of small cap, big cap. Where is the play there that seems to be most attractive right now? Yeah, I mean, as you know, Tom, I mean, EM has really changed over the last 20 years yep. uh, in terms of composition and 
you know, quite frankly, the EM index now looks like the NASDAQ in many ways. Yeah, <laughs> really well said. I mean, remember, Mike, I mean, we can wax philosophical here. It was simple. You buy either the phone company or the concrete company, <laughs> right? That's right. So you, buy the, you buy the utility or you buy... <laughs> the concrete. Uh, yeah, somebody's going to generate from, from infrastructure spending. So, so like, I think that right now I would argue that, that some of the... the the cyclical plays within EM look relatively more attractive than some of the ones in the U.S. because they've been held back. And, and the reason for that is obvious, right? The, the virus has been more debilitating for a lot of these third world sort of, you know, poor emerging market countries. But eventually they're going to get, uh, have success. They're going to have vaccination programs and, and herd immunity. And, and, they'll, and the, so there is probably a latent part of this recovery cycle that lends itself to looking to some of these areas that have been really uh, held back. And I think that's the way we're thinking about it. Hey, Mike, I just can't help myself. Once again, I found myself typing in AMC equity go into my Bloomberg terminal. It's up another 15%. When you see these Reddit stocks that we refer to them now as, you know, like a GameStop or an AMC, a grizzled market veteran like you, grizzled. does that ring some bells that, uh, what's going on in this marketplace? Are we kind of out of top here? Well, I think what it really speaks to is we still have excessive liquidity. And we have animal spirits that are, you know, are percolating. Uh, and so these speculative parts of the market are not completely, have not completely been snuffed out. Now, what I would say, though, Paul, is that we have seen speculative parts of the market get hammered this year. So I do think folks who are playing in that area need to be a bit more careful than maybe they think they should be. Uh, because, you know, the market is onto this idea that liquidity is peaked. And the speculative nature of the market probably has peaked too. So uh, I'm not. I'm. I think it. I think that part of the market is is vulnerable. Yeah. Quite frankly, Mike Wilson, thank you so much. Always a joy with Morgan Stanley this morning, head of all their equity strategy. Let's get right to it. This conversation is too important. Janine Way's chemical engineering out of Berkeley and has put together a storied uh, career in the sell side of integrated oil, actually looking at the American oil companies. Janine, I got a whole bunch of ways to go here, including the climate change uproar at Exxon. But I do have to focus at $70 a barrel on the responsiveness and dynamics of oil price to say ExxonMobil's free cash flow. Is Exxon a real oil company now, or are they a bank that happens to run oil? Which is it, and what are they going to do with $70 a barrel? Thanks for having me on, Tom. That, that's a very interesting question. We do think they are a real company. At $70 a barrel, there are a lot of options, but I think that the main drivers of major stock performance recently has been twofold dividend sanctity and timing of cash returns to cash returns to shareholders. And so at $70, we think that it's a matter of when and not if that Exxon starts returning incremental cash to shareholders. And we think that could probably happen in 2022 because that's okay. when they get that's when they get within yeah. the range of their debt reduction targets. Their 10-year per year return is a travesty. Their 20-year, 10-year return is how CEOs get fired. What's the new religion at ExxonMobil? Well, the new religion is that there's been a paradigm shift in energy broadly, I would say. There's a focus on go-forward cash returns, and there's a high, a significant high grading at Exxon for the projects uh, going forward, which should exactly change the track record of the 
uh, core ROCE going forward. So there's a paradigm change in energy, focus on free cash flow, focus on capital discipline, and the current management team is very um, focused on reducing CapEx to the lower end of the range this year, and they've dramatically lowered the medium-term CapEx to uh, 20 to 25 billion, which is about 10 billion lower than it was before. So we think that the go forward Exxon is a much different company than the prior 10 years that you just mentioned. How high, Janine, do prices have to go before U.S. shale producers, before marginal U.S. Uh, oil drillers actually get back into the market and produce more? That's a good question. I think that's everybody's fear is that with higher oil prices comes more U.S. supply. But what we've noticed in our companies, not just on the U.S. major side, but also with the large cap U.S. EMPs, is that the supply response has been very muted to higher oil prices. And we don't see that changing in the next couple of years. And that goes back to the paradigm shift that we talked about. Investors know that it's a now or never for these companies to prove that they're real companies, that they can return cash to shareholders. And so we think that the supply response will be very muted going forward. Generally speaking, our companies now are much more vocal and aware of the macro conditions around them, indicating that right now the world doesn't need their oil, but they're looking for global inventories to stabilize, they're looking for curtailments to come back, and they're looking for oil demand to come back to 2019 levels before they even consider growth. Um, the, the one caveat there is we're keeping our eye on private production, um, given that it's become a much bigger part of the U.S. supply picture. So, Janine, how much of what you're seeing with respect of discipline has to do with what you're talking about, which is that it might take some time for things to get back to the levels of demand in 2019, and how much has to do with the push by shareholders for climate change activism and some sort of response from the uh, fossil fuel producers? I, th I think it's both. I think that the capital discipline is alive and well, and we keep seeing more and more data points for that. And I think the push for climate change really is making companies more aware that they, they've got to look at the overall macro picture. It's not just every company out for itself. And with investors demanding climate change, the energy transition is only going in one direction. So um, that kind of biases production lower. And let's not forget that investors are really demanding returns and cash returns on and of capital going forward, which historically this group has not done a very good job at. Janine, what does engine number one want from the Exxon board, Exxon leadership, and do you disagree with them? Well, um, we don't necessarily disagree with the nominees that Engine One has proposed. I think certainly they all have uh, merits. And broadly speaking, I think that the market really wants to have change in the Exxon board. So I think Engine One is really looking for transparency and for more energy experience. Um, where we kind of differ from other maybe opinions is that we don't necessarily think that a major change in the board or the strategy of Exxon would necessarily benefit shareholders. And this kind of goes back to your first question in that we think the current management team has done a really good job changing the complexion of the company going forward. So between one, maintaining the dividend last year when oil prices were crashing, two, reducing CapEx to historically low levels from what you would expect them to do, and three, most recently,
recently executing on quarters, we think that the management team is actually doing a pretty good job right now. Um, so a major shakeup we don't think would be the watershed moment that maybe others do. But we do think that the company would benefit from lowering CapEx further in the near term and lowering CapEx to at or below the um, low end of their medium term budget. Could you put some numbers on that for us, Janine? And is this upstream CapEx and how big would that cut be? Right. So this is upstream CapEx that we're talking about. Um, so, for example, if they go to about 19 and a half, 20 billion of CapEx, we think that they can get all of their plans done in the medium term and produce a decent amount of free cash flow. So free cash flow is really the key for the sector because that's how you get cash return to shareholders. That's how companies prove that they're real companies. And so for Exxon, if they do that, what we're saying is lowering CapEx at or below the midpoint of the medium term guide, um, we see free cash flow averaging about 3.6 billion per year on average through 2026, <clears throat> or sorry, 2025. And that would allow them to both pay down gross debt and increase the dividend. Janine, great to catch up. Timely conversation too. Janine Way there, Barclays Senior Analyst. He writes brilliant notes for Pictet of Switzerland. Pictet Wealth Management. We're thrilled that Thomas Kostridge could join us on the American economy morning. this morning. Thomas, my mathematics is a buoyant 6.5% all in this year and a still buoyant 3.2%. We average out at 48 4.9% economy for two years running. That's pretty good, isn't it? That's basically double the run rate, right? Right, and that's what you would expect after you know strong fiscal spending, several rounds of checks. So fiscal support has been really huge, and to some degree, uh, I think actually the economy could do even better than what it is doing now. The economy is strong, but again, if consumers were really going out and and spending all that money that they saved last year, we could go up ten percent. So uh, yeah, we are up six point five percent this year. Uh, it could be better. It could be worse though as well. There can be leakages or surprises within the calculus of what we do. The blunt instrument is we're all going to go out and spend it. No one believes that. What's the leakage within the calculus that you're focused on? What could be the surprise to a more moderate consumption? Right. And the equation is, you know, we look at the pile of savings. We're speaking here at a pile of around $2.2 trillion, right? Around, you know, $1 trillion that consumers have not spent and $1 trillion that's the excess income that they, they got last year because the federal government was so generous. So $2.2 trillion. And the question is, are they going to spend it now? Are they going to wait to spend it? Are they going just to save it or repay the credit card debt? And so far, the indicators we have suggest that there is a, a, a degree of caution out there. You know, people are saving. They're still not unsure about their recovery. Uh, there's also the so-called haircut effect, which means that if you don't go to the hairdresser once, you usually you don't go twice the following week, right? Uh, so, you know, what has not been spent will not be spent. Um, but bottom line is that, you know, um, the, the savings pile is there, but it will probably be spent gradually, uh, which is good news because also it means uh, the U.S. economy will avoid overheating. Thomas, is that just a guess? What are the inputs that go into that? How do you know? How do you come up with a forecast for what happens with savings? Right. So we have data, we have consumer surveys, and so far they're not that great. Actually, in Europe, 
consumer surveys are back to their pre-crisis levels. In the U.S., they're not. If you look at conference board consumer survey, the Michigan survey, and even in some details, I'm, I'm a bit cautious. If you look at housing attentions in the U.S., they're actually going down, which is a bit of a, of a, of a worry uh, because, you know, people should be feeling more confident. They should spend, you know, they should buy houses, cars, and so on and so forth. So we have uh, data from consumer surveys, which suggests some caution. We have also data about April spending. So right, I mean, they received the checks in March, so we already know what they did in April. And in April, people were quite cautious in their spending. So if we extrapolate that, uh, we have uh, the, the outcome that I just described, which is strong growth in the second quarter. But after that, we're likely to see growth normalizing back down towards, say, around 4% in the second half of the year. Thomas, what's the implication if we've basically had helicopter money in the U.S. and even in parts of Europe, and that doesn't lead to sustained inflation? Right. I think one key conclusion for the next recession is that we may have fiscal policy which may put a timestamp on spending. You may be forced in the next recession when you receive a check to spend, in, to spend it within the next three months or six months, but not like, I mean, the problem with that uh, fiscal spending in the U.S. was that, I mean, you, there was no, uh, you know, people didn't tell you that you had to, to, to put it back in the economy. And I think that was maybe a, a fragility or a weakness that could be addressed in the next recession. Now, in terms of inflation outlook, you know, you don't see wage growth or, you know, excessive wage growth. You do not see credit growth. I mean, credit growth in the U.S. remains still uh, subdued. And third, uh, inflation expectations remain uh, very much uh, uh, low. Uh, okay, there is an exception in the Michigan survey, but I think that's an exception. Overall, if you look at inflation expectations, they remain very much anchored. So I do not see an inflation phenomenon kicking in. I see inflation in commodities. I see inflation in some uh, supply chains, in some you know goods and so on and so forth. But there's no generalized uh, uh, increase in inflation. So just to put together this idea of the conservative way that people have been using their spending, which is ba or their savings, excuse me, uh, which is what you're signaling with this friction in the labor market, with people not going back into the labor force, could this be that people are using their cushion to stay home for longer and that there will, they'll only go back once that cushion is used up? I mean, is this sort of part of the mystery in your view that we're seeing in the labor market? Yeah, and and so far, I mean, we we, we had a, a bad employment report last time. Uh, I think I think we really need to 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 show firmer conclusion. We need to really wait for this one on 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 Friday. I mean, this one will really be key uh, to seeing whether there is a genuine impact from the, the the generosity of the federal government with regards to unemployment benefits. I think it does hamper uh, the return to work. Um, however, it's true there are other issues. Uh, one also is that uh, you know com you know firms have have gotten more efficient uh, in this uh, in this during the crisis and during the recovery. You know, uh, you you the skills have changed as well. You know, the economy has changed, and so you don't need the same workers that you did. Uh, you know, the same ones that you, you used before the crisis. Uh, you know, think about the green economy. You need a, a new range of, of skills for the green economy. A, and, uh, you know, those workers, oh. the skills are not there. Um, so that, that's, I think, another issue. And Thomas, your inflation view, maybe it tilts to Jan Hatzius at Goldman Sachs, but I'd really make note that it tilts to David Rosenberg up in Toronto. Rosenberg looks for a disinflation, and he really under he really estimates rather a go east tone. If the, if you're going to buy growth, you've got to go to the Pacific Rim. Does Pictet agree? 
Right. I mean, uh, in terms of the the recovery, um, you know, definitely Asia has been, you know, has definitely rebounded much more quickly. And also, um, you know, you know, a few months ago, it was already rebounding. So definitely Asia is the place to go for for growth. However, you know, right now, uh, the good spot is actually Europe. You know, Europe is recovering. Um, the vaccination is, is also accelerating. I think, you know, this summer could be a good, uh, good, uh, good, good growth uh, for for Europe now, in in, in the longer run, we we are still more optimistic about the U.S. Uh, than than Europe, including for demographic reasons, but also the the technological leadership than we really see in the U.S. Thomas, thank you, sir. Got to catch up, Thomas Costa. Thank there. you. Really good. Big really good. Wealth Management Senior Economist. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.